an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I'm 24 years old, so I'm not much older than most of you here, and I graduated just a couple years ago. Um, I, but I'm not, uh, you know, I, I got involved in the movement when I was very young, and I'll share, I'll share that in a moment. But first of all, is anyone here from California by any chance? Oh, good. Um, awesome. I know Jessica Munwiller is here, and her dad works with Live Action, which is really cool. Uh, where's Jessica? There's Jessica. Um, but it's just awesome. You know, Steubenville, I, I go to a lot of pro-life events. And I feel like I have met half of the student body at Steubenville, or at least half of the people that have gone to Steubenville at some point, because Steubenville graduates are always doing pro-life activity. And I know that you have Pittsburgh so close by with abortion clinics in Pittsburgh killing probably thousands of children, if not more, a year. And so I think you know, having your school, your, your you know, adoration chapel, your tomb for the unborn so close to Pittsburgh, and so, it's so powerful that you have so many strong Catholics here who want to go out into the world and be salt and light, and that you really can do such amazing things, and, and, and even just with a drive to Pittsburgh. So I'm excited for what your school can do. I chose UCLA, my school you know, in California, because I wanted to go to the most pro-life school I could find. That's a joke. <laughs> I mean, my first joke, no laughs. Um, <laughs> gosh, I gotta even work at that. But UCLA is a really, quote unquote, liberal school, as they call it. You know, there's 40,000 people there. It's in the heart of Los Angeles. And I did choose a school to do pro-life work. And it wasn't because I thought it would be well received. It was exactly because I thought, you know, how can I reach other people with the truth? How can I, I had this burning desire in my heart and the desire started when I was a, a, a young girl, when I was about nine years old, actually. And I'm from a big family, so that should tell you something. I'm one of eight kids, so my parents are very pro-life. And believe it or not, we weren't Catholic. Um, I was raised Protestant. And so my parents, when they went to our Protestant church, you know, every Sunday my mom would be having another baby and she'd be pregnant and they'd look at her like, what is this woman, <laughs> this baby-making machine? And one time in Bible study, she's like, she, she's like, could you pray for me? You know, and all the ladies pray for each other. She's like, could you pray for me? They're like, what's going on? What's wrong? She's like, oh, no, it's good. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pregnant. And this was with, like, baby number five. And they're like, we will definitely pray for you. <laughs> then they said, five? You're having, why, why, did, why are you pregnant? What happened? And my mom's like, well, it's good, <laughs> you know, right? It's good. But we were the biggest family at our church. But my parents, I think, had a special grace from God when they first got married after dating for only a few months and they decided to just go all in and, you know, start a beautiful family together. And they just had a special grace to just give it all to God and just to be open to life, even though they didn't have any kind of theological teaching about it. But they just had that special grace. And they weren't pro-life activists, but clearly they were living a pro-life a pro-life passion, a pro-life ethic in the way that they live their family. And so I was, you know, I have five younger siblings. I'm in between five boys. So that taught me to be pretty tough, um, you know, fight, fight for my rights and my family because I, you know, two older brothers, three younger brothers. But any big families here? I'm going to guess there's a few. Okay. <laughs> if you keep your, raise your hand if you have at least four kids in your family. Wow. <laughs> How about five? Six? Keep your hands up. Seven? Eight? We have a small colony in here. Um, nine? Ten? <laughs> How long is this going to take? 11, 12, 13, 13. Wow, I think your parents deserve a, an applause right now. That's awesome. 
I'm number three and I'm watching all these babies be born in the house and all those who have children in your families, which you all do, obviously, you know, it, babies are awesome. There's such, there's such a gift about a baby. There's something so beautiful about a baby that their, their need to be loved, their total dependency, their total vulnerability, and also their total joy. There's something so, even if they scream and cry half the time, but the, the, their, their, their childlike simplicity in experiencing what I believe is ultimately the love of God, and, and they get to sing with the angels even before you know, we even realize what they're experiencing, but I, bet, I believe the babies are close with the angels and they get to have experiences that we don't often get to have as adults and we probably don't even remember later on. I mean, that's one theory. But babies, there's something so beautiful about them. I was just at a funeral on Saturday in, um, in Maryland, and there was a little boy named John Paul Kilner who died at 14 months. And actually, one of the girls who works at Live Action, it's her, it's her godson. And little John Paul, you know, he was diagnosed right when he was born. They discovered he had spinal mus muscular atrophy, which means that none of his muscles worked. And the doctor said, you know, he couldn't survive more than a day, but they, they gave him some life support and they loved him and they prayed for him. And little John Paul lived 14 months. And he was named after, of course, Blessed Pope John Paul II. And we were praying for a miracle to Blessed Pope John Paul. But, you know, his, his life, one, one priest that the family was close to said that John Paul had a priestly vocation, he believed, because the priestly vocation is to suffer and to offer sacrifices. And little John Paul was his own sacrifice and the suffering he endured. But it was amazing to see that, you know, and, and, and um, the, the uncle of little John Paul wrote an article recently named Tim, and Tim wrote that, you know, when John Paul, before he lost the muscles in his face, because he just completely, all his muscles, you know, deteriorated, but before little John Paul lost the muscles in his face, when he was just a few months old, he would smile, he'd just beam. And, and Tim said that this would make grown men sob, because it was this little baby who was totally dependent and didn't have a chance at life. The doctor said he'd die any minute, and he would just smile as long as he could. And little John Paul, even though he was only 14 months and never spoke a word in his life, couldn't even be held because he was, he was trached and he had to be on a ventilator. So he was, in a, you know, he was kind of in an in a ambulatory little, you know, almost like a carriage. Even though all of that, you know, John Paul touched so many people's life. And he teaches us, and what he you know, taught me again and reminded me again this weekend is that we are valuable and we have dignity completely intrinsically. Not because of what we can give to the world, because of what we can achieve, because of our beauty, because of our physical successes, because of our intellectual successes, not because of even how much we can love, not even because of how virtuous we can be or the actions that we do, but just because we are human. To be human is enough because we're made in God's image and likeness and our very existence makes God smile. Our very existence brings him glory. And so little John Paul, that and, you know, any secular person, any pro-choice advocate would look at him and say, you know, that child should have been aborted. Like 90, over 90% of children with Down syndrome are aborted. Don't understand this fundamental radical truth that Christ teaches us, which is that he, God himself, is taking on our identity and he's making us in his image and likeness. And that is our value. And that's the value that we proclaim. That's the great truth that we proclaim, that we're made in the image and likeness of God that we're made for love and to be loved, and that that experience of love doesn't always look the way that we think it should. It can sometimes look so mysterious and so vulnerable like little John Paul Kilner. 
that's the positive in all this. That's what we're fighting for. That's why we're gathered here tonight. You're not here just to you know, hear another talk about abortion, how horrible it is. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But we're here because of what we proclaim and what a beautiful truth that is, which is the, the radical truth about each one of us. Because we believe in the dignity of the human person. And that dignity is God taking on our humanity as Christ and offering us in his image and likeness to, for love. What a radical beauty. And that's why when we start to look at evil now, and I'm going to talk about that, that's why this is such a crushing matter because it goes directly against God's loving perfect will, which is life and that all men be saved, but instead it's attacking life when it's the most vulnerable and it's turning the family inside out, but turning the family, the mother against the child and the family against itself, the family against the most vulnerable member of its own unit, the child. When I was a child, I found out about abortion. I was nine years old. I had heard about abortion at the dinner table, you know, and my parents would be discussing politics, and we, they would mention Bill Clinton like he was a bad word. <laughs> and it would be like kind of in whispers, like Bill Clinton, you know, with the, the new president. And I'd say, what did he, you know, what, who's Bill Clinton? And it, like what he was doing, bad things he was doing, and all of this stuff. And, and then they would mention partial birth abortion. And I would think that sounds so bad, and they would say it is bad, and you know, this was during the time when Bill Clinton, as president, was repeatedly refusing to sign the ban on partial birth abortion. So I heard these things, I knew they existed, but I didn't really understand. And so when I was nine, I would have my first encounter with abortion. And I was looking for a book to read one day in my living room, and I was a bit of a bookworm. I wanted to read every single book in our house. And so back then I was pretty short, even shorter than I am now, and I, was, I started on the lowest shelf, you know, in the living room, in the family room. My dad would order books from Amazon.com, like a woman orders shoes, or a woman buys shoes. He had a book obsession, and so our house, every room in the house literally, including bathrooms, <laughs> basically has bookshelves or books piled different places because my dad just loves books. Um, the invention of the Kindle was a bit of a shock to him, as you may imagine, because we have so many actual books. But I, was, I found this book on the bottom shelf, and it was called A Handbook on Abortion by Dr. and Mrs. Wilkie. And I pulled it out. I was kind of curious, and I opened it up, and it fell to the center where there were images. And in shock and horror, and you know, I'm, a nine, I'm nine years old, I closed the book, I pushed it away, and I don't, I don't want to keep looking. And then gathering up a little bit of nine-year-old courage, I pulled the book back, and I opened it up, and I look again. And what I'm looking at is an, is an image that maybe some of you have seen. And it was the image of a tiny child, maybe 10 weeks old, with newly forming little arms and legs and a newly forming little face that had been the victim in the first trimester of an abortion. And as I looked at this image, I thought with my heart just struck to the core, I thought, is this real? Is this really happening? And how could anybody do this to a baby? And I went and I found my mom in the kitchen and I showed it to her and I said, is this real? Is this really happening? And then she closed the book and she said, yes, and that's abortion. After seeing that image, I just, I, I, I wanted to learn more. What, what is this, what is going on? I, I learned that since 1973, this had been legal. That even babies bigger than the one I had seen in the picture could be killed. I learned that there were over a million of these happening a year, over 3,300 happening a day in our country legally. I learned that just 10 miles from my childhood home where I grew up so safe and so loved, there, were, there was a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. 
across the street from a children's daycare and a YMCA that killed children on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, that killed 30 children a day, almost 100 a week. And as I learned these things, I thought, how can, how can we allow this? Because I, I had a sense of, of joy for be, living in America, living in my family. I felt a sense of security. But I recognized that there were children that were not so safe the way that I was safe, the way that I had been protected and loved. And there are children very close to me, maybe even in my own neighborhood, down the street, in the house next door, who may be in danger of an abortion, or people who had had abortions, or children that had been killed that could have and should have grown up on the street that I was raised on. And as I thought about all these things as I got older, I also learned about all the other issues that we face. And as Christians, and I was raised a Protestant, as Christians, as you know, people of faith, as Americans, as young people, we face so many issues, right? Everybody has issues, even at Steubenville. Everyone has issues. I mean, we have issues, the world has issues, there's financial crisis, crises happening right and left, there's foreign affairs issues, there's the problem of homelessness, there's the AIDS epidemic in Africa, there's poverty, we could go on and on and on. And there's all kinds of nonprofits and NGOs and political efforts and initiatives around different issues. But I kept coming back to that image of that child because I came across Mother Teresa's writings when I was about 12. And Blessed Mother Teresa said in a speech to the National Prayer Breakfast to the Clintons, this little humble nun from Calcutta, she's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, she's an expert on peace, and she had every opportunity in public, when she had the opportunity, she would say very strong words about abortion. Even though she was advocating for things that were less controversial, like the poor, the suffering, the dying, the lonely, the lepers. But she would say very strong things. And at this prayer breakfast, she looked the Clintons in the eye, and this little nun who could hardly see above the podium said, the greatest destroyer of peace in the world is the cry of the innocent unborn child. And then she said, in a nation where a mother can kill her own child, what is left but for you and for I to kill one another? And I read this and I thought, this prioritizes the issues a little bit. For this woman that I respected so much, and I began a devotion to her before I'm re realizing what a devotion even meant, I'm a, I'm a convert. This woman saying this is the greatest destroyer of peace because the mother, the most intimate human of bonds, a mother and her child is turned in on itself, and the most defenseless member of society from a human rights perspective is stripped of their most fundamental human rights. When we have a nation that's founded on the right to life, like our great country, and I love our country, and we love our country, but when we have a nation that's founded on the right to life, like the Declaration of Independence states so clearly, we're created, we're given, endowed by our creator with, with these rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, life comes first. Consider that for a moment, the creed of human rights that we stand by, that nations and the United Nations claims to stand for, it has to start with the right to life. And if the most vulnerable member of society is denied the most fundamental right, you have the potential for a human rights crisis of the most epic proportions. And that's what we're seeing in the United States today. And this is the, this is the beginning of the end of democracy. And this is also the spiritual ramifications of this. 
can only, can, we can hardly wrap our minds around. Because when we consider, you know, Paul says, St. Paul says in Ephesians that we do not battle against the physical forces. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but that we battle against the spiritual forces. But if the physical forces mean that there's over a million children being killed legally in the greatest country in the world, in America, legally, what are the spiritual dimensions of abortion? Even, even more horrific than the, the physical. I mean, St. Paul says that the battle is spiritual. And if the physical battle is so bloody and so catastrophic, what is the spiritual battle that we're in the middle of? All of these things, not all of them, I was just beginning to understand some of this as a young teenager. And I, I, you know, I would start to think, okay, I've got to do something about this. I had a special sense, and I believe it was a grace that God gave me that, you know, look, I've got one, and, and also maybe being homeschooled, you know, homeschoolers can think some quirky thoughts sometimes, so that might be it too. But I thought, you know, look, I have one life to live. I could die tomorrow, and you know, we could all die tomorrow. And so I thought, what am I going to do with my life? I want to do something meaningful with my life. And Blessed Mother Teresa is calling abortion the greatest destroyer of peace. And it's, it's coming to my heart so much, and I want to do something about it. And so in my prayer to God, and I would say, you know, I was taught to pray. I was taught to, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I was taught that, you know, he is God. I was taught the Nicene Creed. I mean, I, I had some, you know, taught to read the Bible, taught the scriptures. And I thought, you know, if I want to give my life for something, if I want to give my life to Christ, what better way than to ask him to use me? And this is the prayer I began to pray. Then to ask him to use me to do something about abortion. Because that was what was, began to burn in my heart. It was like, Lord, use me. Use me to do something about abortion. Use me to somehow save some lives. And you know, it's really dangerous <laughs> to ever ask God to use you to do anything for him. Because he absolutely will. God wants to use each one of us to be a part of his salvific plan for the whole world. He uses those saints in heaven quite a bit, doesn't he? I mean, we're, they're offered to us on a platter every day. And for them to get to heaven, do you know how much they had to say yes to God using them on earth? Quite a bit. So if we want to get to heaven like our saints, the friends, ask him, use me. What can I do for you? Use me. Show me what I can do. Show me your will for me. And only when we position our hearts, and we can go to adoration right across the way, I just got to see your awesome little adoration chapel, and you, you, lay, you, you, you present your heart to Christ and say, here I am in all of my weaknesses, propensities, issues, you know, all of my desires, all of my struggles, here I am, do with me as you will, your will be done in my life. God will take you on an adventure you would never have imagined. And, and I never would have imagined when I was 13 years old praying this prayer, use me, that I would be founding a national nonprofit, that we would be raising millions of dollars to take down the biggest abortion chain and the biggest political leader of abortion, Planned Parenthood, that I travel internationally, that we do undercover investigations, that we'd be working with attorneys general and district attorneys and police operatives to talk about how to you know, shut down clinics. I, I, didn't, I didn't come up with those ideas. It wasn't my plan when I was a teenager to do these things because I wasn't smart enough, frankly, to plan all that. Instead, it was more, God, you know, what can I do for you? Show me, show me what I can do. And then taking the next right step. And then saying, what can I do next? And so live action, you know, when I started as a teenager with some friends, it was really just a youth education initiative to say, okay, we know that there's Planned Parenthood in our community. 
We know that abortion is happening in the schools. We know that abortion is happening you know, in the church. In fact, the abortion rate is almost the same in the church as it is in, in the secular world, and that's for both Protestants and Catholic. And so you know, I thought if we could just reach other Christian youth with the truth, that's a good, easy place to start in the youth groups, in Christian schools. And so we started by doing pro-life presentations and you know, knocking down doors for youth pastors, trying to get them to give us permission, frankly, to talk about abortion at youth group. Because abortion is very controversial, and, and a lot of them didn't even want to talk about it in the church. In these, in these you know, houses of worship in the Protestant community. I know that they're called houses of worship. I'm among Catholics now. Um, the church is the church and Protestants have houses of worship. But these, in these houses of worship, that they, they didn't even want to talk about abortion. They didn't even want to address it. And so all of this, it was just a, you know, it was, a, it was for, for me, it was the beginning of what can we do beyond this? Start where you are, start in your community, and then what can we do beyond this? And so at UCLA, I got to school, I realized very quickly this is not a pro-life, you know, the, the environment there was very pro-abortion. There was a hookup culture at the school, there was a lot of promiscuity, girls were getting pregnant, but there were no pregnant girls on campus. And it was just, you know, it, it, it was amazing for me to see that girls were getting pregnant, but what happened to them? And I quickly discovered, I did my first you know, mini investigation of my health center, I posed as myself, and I just walked in and I said, hey, I think I'm pregnant, can I talk to the, to the nurse here? And the head nurse at UCLA sat me down and told me that UCLA didn't support women who were pregnant or help them necessarily, but that there were two abortionists that I could go see at the, at the UCLA Medical Center and that they could get the state of California to pay for my abortion even though I was insured by my parents so that it wouldn't show up in their insurance. I mean, this was, this was UCLA's advice to me as who they thought was a pregnant student. And when I heard that advice, I thought, first of all, where is the empowerment of, of the woman in this? It was completely against empowerment of me. It was, you have a choice and it's abortion, basically. It's no choice, truly, it's abortion. But then I also thought, you know, what is, if this is what UCLA is saying at their counseling program, then what is the actual abortion clinic saying? Like Planned Parenthood, who claim to be pro-choice, what are they saying to women? What are they saying to young women who come into their doors every day? And many of you probably are familiar with Planned Parenthood. Raise your hand if you've heard of them before. I think we've all heard of them. Does anyone know how many abortions they do every year? Any, any guesses? Anyone know? 333,000, exactly, in their latest report. Does anyone know how much money they make every year? Yeah. Over a billion dollars they have every year. And half of that money comes from the government, exactly. Half of the money comes from the government. So that's kind of the, the they've cornered the abortion market. They're the biggest political proponent of abortion in the United States. Their social media team alone is over 15 people. Live action social media team is about a half of a person, but our <laughs> Facebook page is bigger. So that just goes to show, you know, that the pro-life movement is the one in, you know, one on top. But their, their, their power politically and then what they're doing every day to promote abortion at the local level and in schools is very, it's huge. And so I knew some of these things. I, I was seeing what was happening at Planned Parenthood. I saw that they referred to Planned Parenthood as well and that there was Planned Parenthood on campus through the CAPS program, doing an intern, you know, trying to get interns from my student body to come. And so I thought, you know, is there something we can do to expose them here at UCLA? 
And that led me to do my first investigation of a Planned Parenthood clinic. I was 18 years old. You know, I didn't, I had never, I mean, besides going into the health center, I'd never done investigative journalism. But I wanted to do a report for the magazine Advocate that we started to promote the pro-life message on campus. And so I walked into a Planned Parenthood in Santa Monica called, you know, uh, that was on the second floor of a little, you know, coffee shop below it, on the second floor, elevator to go up. And it was right in a, in a beautiful area called Third Street Promenade. Has anyone been to Third Street in Santa Monica? It's a beautiful area, right? It's shopping. It goes right up to the water, to the ocean, and there's a Ferris wheel, there's restaurants. It's, it's a tourist attraction. But right above this coffee shop is a Planned Parenthood medical abortion clinic open for business. And I walked in and I had a voice recorder in my blouse. I had a camcorder in my bag. It wasn't very high tech. You know, we've gotten a little more high tech since then. But I just wanted to see what they would tell me if I posed as a victim of abuse. Because there's a tight link between Planned Parenthood, abortion, and abuse. Sexual abuse victims, sexually trafficked victims end up finding themselves at Planned Parenthood clinics because the pregnancy is evidence of the crime that's been committed against them. And so the abuser, especially if it's an older man abusing a little girl, wants her to have an abortion quickly to cover up that crime. And if it's a sex trafficker, he doesn't want his sex victims, his sex slaves, pregnant on the job. So he'll take them to a reproductive health clinic that won't ask any questions. And I was researching this, I was studying it, and I thought, what will they tell me if, they, if I go in posing as an abuse victim? So I got up the elevator, I, I step off the elevator, I go up to the waiting room, and there's these glass doors. And I was really nervous. My heart was beating very quickly. It's like a soundtrack. You can hear it on the voice recorder um, to the whole, like, a, you know, the backbeat for the whole investigation. And I step into the waiting room. They buzz me in. And I walk up to the check-in counter. And I look at, you know, the Planned Parenthood workers there. And I say, hi. I said, you know, can I talk to somebody? And she said, yeah, what's going on? And I said, well, I'm 15, you know, and um, I'm pregnant. And she must have gotten the cue that there was something, you know, something particular about me because immediately she should have had red flags raised in her head because I'm, a, I'm underage and I'm pregnant. That indicates there's likely abuse happening and indicates there's likely statutory rape, which Planned Parenthood is required to immediately report to the police or to Child Protective Services in every state. The laws are a little different, but in every state there's mandated reporting. And so the, the woman brought me behind the check-in counter and she said, okay, what's really going on? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm 15 and, you know, he's a lot older, I said, you know, he's, he's 23. And she said, okay, like, so what? And I said, well, you know, what should I do? And she laughed and she said, just figure out a birth date that works. She said, lie on the paperwork. Say that you're older than you really are. Nobody needs to know about the secret abortion. We won't tell anyone. He can pay for it. We'll take care of it. That was my first piece of advice at a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. Lie about your age. We won't tell anyone. We'll give you the secret abortion. Walking out of that clinic, and my heart was just, just burdened with the thought that, you know, that could have been a little, an actual 15-year-old girl. I'm 18, and thankfully I'm not pregnant, and thankfully I'm pro-life, and I understand what's going on here, but there are 15-year-old girls walking into clinics, 13-year-old girls, 12-year-old girls, even 11-year-old girls, victims of abuse. There's court cases where some of these girls have grown up and are now suing Planned Parenthood, two in the state of Ohio, by the way, 
One of them was a victim of incest, 12 years old, who was abused by her father. One of them abused by a soccer coach, brought to Planned Parenthood in Ohio, and the abuse was covered up, and now they're suing Planned Parenthood for the abuse cover-up. There are real stories, and I thought, if that's what they're saying at this clinic, they must be saying this at all the clinics. They must be covering up abuse, and I knew I'd done my research, I'd studied this, and I thought, if people just knew, if the girls at UCLA just understood that this organization is not pro-women like they claim to be, that this is truly not pro-choice, but instead that this is going against the child in the most vulnerable form, but also against the woman. In the objectification of the child, they've also objectified the woman. And that's the way that evil is. In, it, theologically, evil will go the evil will go the way to all the way to hell. Evil is not satisfied with hurting or killing one soul. They it wants all souls. It wants total destruction of anything that is good. And so, attacking the child, attacking that that abortion is not good enough for evil. It's not good enough for Satan. He wants he wants the abuse to continue for the woman. He wants a cycle of abuse. He wants the woman back in there for another abortion. And Planned Parenthood is happy to promote it. Because part of their ideology is not only that abortion is somehow choice and okay, and even a good thing, but also that there should be a sick code, what I call a sick code of confidentiality or secrecy around abuse. That human sexuality is not the way that we understand it to be, but instead that sex with anyone, anywhere, anytime, for any reason, that's, that's just choice. That's a matter of flexing the human muscle and doing whatever you want. And, and then, if there's consequences, come to Planned Parenthood for an abortion. And that's the system they've set up for our young people, and that's when they're going into our schools and teaching children as young as in kindergarten to experiment sexually and, and, and develop sexual patterns of behavior that are only going to harm them in the long run. And that's, that's part of their plan. And when I said at the beginning of this talk, you know, Planned Parenthood is the most evil organization in human history, I'm saying that because, one, They've killed more people than any other single organization over, you know, by promoting it politically and then by actually killing themselves. And in the United States, in the United States alone, it's over 55 million. But they've been architects behind some of the abortion, the abortion practices in places like India and China where they've actually been part of the architects behind sex-selective abortion. And I'm going to talk, you know, show a video here in just a moment to show some of that investigation we've done recently. But they're also going to our young people and twisting their understanding of sexuality to create the climate for abortion. And that's ultimately what we're seeing in our country today. And some of the, the favorite promoters of sexology that Planned Parenthood likes to promote is Alfred Kinsey, Kinsey in sexology. And he was a very twisted man. But long story short, is anyone familiar with, with Kinsey? Something to look up. It's, it's really horrific. But his sexology and his understanding of sexuality is actually in our sex ed curriculum in many of our schools that Planned Parenthood has helped to engineer and that is being pushed on our young people. And part of that is a misunderstanding of, of course, human sexuality and what is ultimately creating a climate for abuse. That, you know, adult-child sexual relationships are not a big deal. This was a Kinseyan idea that they're not a big deal. And so Planned Parenthood, I mean, I'm getting way detailed here, but the long story short is Planned Parenthood, when they see sexual abuse, they don't consider the abuse victim. They consider her need for an abortion, and that's what they think the solution to her problem is. And so after that first investigation, we started to investigate all over the country. 
and we started to you know, take the investigation and during summers I'd go with a team and we'd travel across the country to do undercover investigations. And you know, I, I would start to, I guess you could say I was flattered to see my photo show up on their walls of their clinics. And so I, I ended up bleaching my hair uh, platinum blonde to continue to go undercover. And then they put my picture up as a, a blonde next to the brunette. And so I thought, okay, I can go red next, or maybe it's time to you know, train some new people. And so now, you know, I'm retired, <laughs> I'm too old. Um, <laughs> but we have a great training program, and you know, we use investigators of all shapes and sizes, <laughs> all ages. We've used adult, you know, grown men, elderly women, all different kinds of investigations that we do now because we're probing different questions that we have from our research department. And these questions can be, what's Planned Parenthood's role in sexism in America? And what is their role in sex-selective abortion? And I'll, I'll show this video in a mo here in a moment. Planned Parenthood and eugenics. Planned Parenthood is some of the, some of the architects behind the pushing sterilization at the time and you know, contraceptives, and then when it became legal, abortion on minority populations. And it's not an accident that a black baby is almost as likely to be aborted as he or she is to be born. And so we've investigated that and come up with creative ways to expose that. You know, sexual trafficking of minors and, and aiding and abetting sex traffickers. We, we documented in seven different clinics, clinics, we sent in an actor posing as a pimp. And this was in clinics, you know, in New Jersey and DC and Virginia, posing as a pimp. And he went in and he said, I have these underage sex slaves, they're th 14 years old. And the Planned Parenthood workers said, oh, that's no problem. We'll give you a discount on abortion. You know, lie on the paperwork, say that your sex slaves are students, and they'll get a discount for all of, their, all of the services. Even giving advice about how to use these girls for sex after they've been hurt by an abortion. I mean, horrific, horrific stuff, but all connected, of course, to the fact that they're doing abortions at this clinic. So should we be so surprised when they objectify the woman, the, this young girl, in that way? This video that I'm about to share is part of our, one of our latest investigations on gender side. Has anyone seen any of these videos? The gender side investigation? A, a few of us. So has anyone heard of gender side before? Is it a familiar, a familiar term? Basically, the killing of people based on their sex, and particularly women, are targeted. And this is happening in India and in China largely where there's complete gender disparity. And so they're missing, you know, some are saying 160 million girls are missing in China and in India and internationally because they're being targeted for mostly for abortion. And you know, population controllers who try to scare countries and say, oh, you're having too many babies, there's too much of this happening. They, they target women because a woman, if they can kill off the women, the women are the ones that can have the children. And so plan, some of Planned Parenthood's you know, uh, early advisors were also sending, exporting sex-selective abortion techniques to India, saying, hey, if you want to have less people in your country, and that was really their agenda, you know, to control the populations in these third world countries, then let's export and popularize sex-selective abortion techniques, because there was already a little bit of a bias against girls, because boys were valued in the culture, and so let's give them tools to make this a full-on, uh, you know, a full-on um, campaign, and, that, and that's why we're missing over 100 million girls. But this video is about the United States, and it's documenting in different Planned Parenthood clinics in the United States their attitude and their willingness to aid and abet sex-selective abortions here in the United States.
over 100 million girls are missing today. These girls were victims of female gendercide, the targeting of females for extermination through infanticide and most often the aborting of pre-born girls just because they are girls. The Economist reports, the destruction is worse in China but has spread far beyond. Even sections of America's population have distorted sex ratios. Gendercide exists on almost every continent. If experts are right and gendercide is taking place in our own backyard, what is being done to protect our girls from the most brutal form of discrimination, violent sex-selective abortion? In April 2012, Live Action investigated abortion clinics nationwide to discover what would happen when the clinic receives a blatant request for a sex-selective abortion of a baby girl. In the footage you are about to see, Live Action went undercover at Planned Parenthood in Austin, Texas. And so, what are you leaning more towards? I see that you say that you want to terminate if it's a girl, so you just wanted to continue the pregnancy um, in the meantime, or what? Yeah, I think that would be the, um, the plan. The, the, uh, Abortion covers you up until 23 weeks. Okay. So it's a little over five months. Little. Okay. And usually at five months is usually when they detect, you know, whether or not it's a boy or a girl. I see. So you would be like right. Right Sometimes there. they can tell four. I mean, I've seen that happen, but it just depends. Depends. Mm-hmm. Who, do you think I should go and just ask for an ultrasound and just not tell them that I'm going to terminate if it's a girl or... I just feel like there's been some judgment for my... Um, I mean, to be honest with you, um, I would probably think so just because, I mean, we've had even uh, clinicians, I mean, regular doctors that actually have even told women, you know, you can't go and terminate after your 16 weeks, you know, which is not true, but, um, you know, they, a lot of doctors, you know, they'll place judgment because of the fact that the brain is already developed. Every a lot, you know, a lot. Pretty much everything's already developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The brain is already developed. Every a lot, you know, a lot. Pretty much everything's already developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for you to go and terminate, you know, so, you know, usually we tell them, you know, you don't actually have to say what you're gonna go do. I have actually applied for Medicaid, got on Medicaid as if I was going to continue my pregnancy. Went through the OBGYN and then me and my husband decided we're going to go ahead and terminate. We terminated and I still stayed on Medicaid um, and just got on birth control. Right after I got on birth control, okay. I just stopped using it. Right. I didn't want it anymore. I didn't <laughs> use it anymore. Mm -hmm. so, um, so then I could, um, then we could probably, you're, you're thinking like if we did that, we could probably get pregnant again soon after. 
Oh yeah. yeah. I've had two abortions and I have four kids. Okay. So <laughs> all right. So, so I mean, okay. again, yeah. from experience. Yeah. Know, okay. There's nothing wrong with you pregnant immediately. Okay. Right <laughs> all right. Okay. <laughs> Do you, so these these providers would be more at least more open to mm -hmm. me terminating. Um, but do you think I still sh just shouldn't worry about telling them that I'm that I would be terminating if it's a girl? Just kind of right. Just keep it quiet and then come here. Yeah, I, I would. I would probably because more than likely they could even. I mean, they could even refuse to I continue to see you if you're just going to terminate. You gotcha. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I see. This is what you could take. Are you wanting to possibly get on med pregnancy Medicaid to see if you can get like a... Yeah, I would, I'd like to try that. Okay. Oh. I'm going to give you this too as well. This is what right. you would take to the Medicaid office. This is basically okay. just proof of pregnancy. Oh, good. Thank you. So then I'd want to schedule, um, try to schedule an ultrasound with an OB around then, and then I would still mm -hmm. be able to come back here mm -hmm. for a termination if it was a girl. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. And, and again, you know, if you go and see an OBGYN, um, you know, pretty soon, and you do an, uh, an ultrasound to see exactly how far along you are, Okay. then you can really detect, okay, this is how far along I am, this is how, this is when I need to, need to you know. Yeah. This is when I need, uh, when I'll know whether or not it's a boy or girl. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So again, you'll be like 20 weeks. That's five months. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. That is really helpful. Thank you for understanding. You're I, welcome. I was worried that I'm, I would get I'm, judgment I'm, for terminating because oh, of no. the gender and you've been so. <laughs> no. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, help you as much as possible. To <laughs> so. Thank you. You know, you, uh, um, some things you probably can't be too open because there are people out there that'll place judgment, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then whenever it does happen, it's like you could tell them one thing, but then they might even just think another. Another. But that's. What matters is that, you know, you have your family. <laughs> yes, my boy and my girl. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right, exactly. So just continue and try again. So just continue and try again. <laughs> okay, all right. So I will call you back. And um, I mean, obviously, if it's a girl, I'll call you back. And right. If not, then and I'll give you a, let me give you our card, too, Thank just so you, you can have. Um, actually, I forgot the numbers right here. Oh, okay. That you call. Great. Okay. All right. Well, good luck. Thank and, you. And I hope that you do get your boy. Thank and, you. And I hope that you do get your boy. Thank and, you. And I hope that you do get your boy. To learn more about what you can do to protect our girls, join us at protectourgirls.com. So that's just a sample of some of what we found. Um, I know it's getting late here, so I just want to close out. And you know, if you have a couple of questions, I'd be happy to answer them. But in all of this, you know. For me, sometimes, it does get a little bit intense, a little bit overwhelming. Because I really believe what I was saying earlier, you know, we are in the middle of a great crisis. And when we look back on this, and I pray for our country, I believe our country, God is not finished with our country yet. I don't think that he wants our country to go the way, you know, say, people say, well, the Roman Empire fell, and every great civilization falls, and America, we're just on the downward spiral. But I don't think it has to be that way. And I think that we're so blessed and we've been given so much and we don't want to, 
you know, the, the cost for the dreams that we may have of having a family someday or of living, you know, living a life, you know, in the future in a beautiful community and having a, the freedom to go to mass and the freedom to, to love and spend good time with friends, all of these beautiful gifts that we experience in our life. You know, we're, we're given them because we have a, a nation with a, a civil system and a culture that there's still goodness there. And so if we want to not only maintain that goodness, but if we want to have that goodness for the future, into the future, we have to do something. We have to stand up and do something because our country is, is going radically the other direction. And if we allow, if we don't stand up to Planned Parenthood, if we don't stand up to the attacks on religious liberty, if we don't stand up to the, these everyday attacks, especially the attacks on the weakest members, or on our unborn brothers and sisters, then we're not going to have the joys that we enjoy, that live the lives that we want to live. So this is not a battle that we can, we can insulate ourselves from, but it's a battle that affects each one of us, whether we like it or not. And that's why I'm so encouraged, though, and I'm so excited you know, to be here at Steubenville, and I'm going to Grove City College tomorrow, and I get to, you know, our team gets to work with and meet a lot of young people, a lot of college-aged people, and even high school. And to see the enthusiasm and the willingness to stand up at this important time in our history, that is all the hope in the world. And so I just want to encourage you, you know, you've got a wonderful Students for Life leadership here with Alex and Grace and the others at your university. And I know different, you know, different folks here are involved in different things. But make this thing a priority. And I want to leave you with, with three things. And the first, first thing is pray. Of course, you hear this every day. This, I think this is a very prayerful school. I love it. Um, but continue to pray and ask God to show you what he wants to, to do with your life, particularly for the culture of life, because we're all called to the culture of life. I'm not just called or, you know, Students for Life here isn't just called, but we're all called. And what does that mean for you? What is, how does God want to do that in your life? Ask him and he'll show you. Be willing to hear what he has to say to you, and, and he will say things to you. Ask him. And the second thing is to continue to educate yourself and the people around yourself. Make sure you know and you're up to date on what's going on. Connect with Live Action on Facebook. Connect with you know, the different pro-life organizations and get involved with, what, with what's happening. Make sure that you're aware of what's happening. And the last thing, of course, is act. Get out there and act. You know, just like Alex was saying earlier, but you know, being at the clinic, it's, it's, such a, it's such a painful experience, but it's so important. And I know that the folks that go here every Saturday, that takes a lot to give up your Saturday morning and to go. And I don't want to, I'm not here to guilt trip anyone into, into going, but at the same time, a, a little bit. <laughs> um, and I'll be honest here, you know, I'm, I need to guilt myself into going more often, but being there as a prayerful presence and then at the opportunity to, to reach out to women, it's amazing. You, God really does want to save lives through that act of sacrifice. And not just at that clinic, but other clinics. I'm sure there's other clinics in Pittsburgh. I'm sure there's, and, and beyond. And there's other things to do too, other forms of activism online, other events, you know, other, you know, going, we were talking at dinner tonight about going into malls and putting pro-life information in bags and shoes that people are gonna purchase. <laughs> um, I'm not formally recommending this, but again, it's a cool <laughs> activism idea. Um, my siblings were out with their friends in California chalking all the public sidewalks with pro-life sayings and phrases and facts. I mean getting out there and being unafraid to do something a little maybe controversial that might appear controversial, making a little sacrifice, breaking our own routines, because we have our routines, our, you know, our lives, our homework, our friends, our whatever, even our mass routine, but going out there and being willing to do something. 
because God will shower graces, I believe, upon our prayerful willingness to get out there and take risks and do something. And every day we should live it like it's our last, and we should also live it with that willingness to take risks because of the faith that's in our heart and the love, really the love that's in our heart. And in all of this, that's what it all comes back to. The love of God, God's love for us, and the love that he's allowed us to show to the people around us. And particularly those that are the most need of our love, the most need of our prayers, and that's our unborn brothers and sisters. There's a world that's needing us out there so much. And it's up to us to stand up and say, here I am, use me, show me what I can do for you, and God will really show you, and it will be, it will be beautiful. So thank you so much for having me here this evening. I think there's time maybe for a few questions, but thanks again for having me at Steubenville. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.